Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Our scripture passage comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years." Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel And fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb." And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. And she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Verse 39. Now at this time Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to a city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how it has happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me. For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The grace and peace be with you from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a delight to be with you today, and I'm thankful to have the privilege of standing before you to bring you a portion of God's Word and to point you to the Lord Jesus Christ. Many years ago, uh, we want to say in a galaxy far, far away, but it was just in a building across town. We met, some of us met, and I was able to come and visit with you then along with some of my musicians in those days. Uh, so I have fond memories of that day and also uh, feel warmly welcomed uh, to be with you today. So thank you for receiving me and my wife. Luke the physician and the evangelist wrote a well-researched and orderly account of the person and work of Jesus Christ for God lovers. His stated purpose was that people who love God might know the accuracy and the certainty of the story of Jesus. This is true truth. This is not fan fiction. As we enter the story today, I want you to think about a time when you were the quietest. Think about the time when you were the loudest. Think about a time when you might have been unable to speak. Think about a time when you could not keep yourself from singing. The reason I want you to think about these two things is because it will help you relate to Zechariah and to Elizabeth as the gospel moves you from fearful silence to joyful shouts. My purpose today is to draw your attention to some of the Advent themes of waiting hoping, longing, expecting that rise up in this story. And since we're not very familiar with each other, and I know how difficult it can be to listen to different pastor week after week, I just want to say that I'm going to try to take it easy on you. (laughs) And what I mean by that is I'm going to give you a roadmap forward. I I want to let you know up front how... I want to approach this story. I don't want to keep you guessing. And so as we make our way through the story, I want you to know that I'm going to be weaving together observations and interpretations and applications. So it won't be a formulaic, here's the introduction, three points, wait for the application and the prayer and we're done. It's all going to be mixed together like a tossed salad and hopefully it will be healthy food for us to enjoy. Advent is a penitential season, fraught with many sorrows, and yet filled with much hope. What starts in a fearful silence in this story ends with joyful shouts, just as our life begins with fearful silence and ends with joyful shouts if we are in Christ. And so see yourselves in this story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. 
In this story, we meet Zechariah and Elizabeth, who are an older, devout, and godly married couple. Both of these people come from priestly families. They love the Lord and they live according to his word. Luke says that they were advanced in years, and that might make some of you think, well, they have to be older than I am because I'm not advanced in years yet. We might think of advanced in years as being 70s or 80s, maybe beyond. But in their time frame, advanced in years could have been 50s and 60s. They're advanced in years. It means that they are beyond their childbearing years. Whatever else they might have wanted or prayed for in this life, a child ranks at the very top of the list. But like so many of their forefathers in the faith, they were unable to have children together. Despite their desire to be fruitful and to multiply, they suffered from infertility. That means one thing to Zechariah, it means another thing to Elizabeth. To Elizabeth, it feels like disgrace, a reproach, shame. Infertility infertility felt like a reproach. She might as well have been walking around all of her life with a giant eye on her clothes. Unlike our days where people decide whether or not to have children, and they treat that decision as a basic human right or an expression of personal liberty, in those days, not to have children was viewed as something unnatural and shameful. Some of you or some of your friends know exactly what the shame of infertility feels like. It's a sorrowful ache that never, ever goes away, and it never gives way to joy. I say all of that to say that Zechariah and Elizabeth are ordinary people like you. Zechariah is a priest, and he has a wife, and they have a story, and they have experience, and they have burdens. Same goes for pastors and their families. So when they enter the house of God to perform their duties and to fulfill their ministry, they do so often in spite of everything that's happening at home, everything that's happening in life. Same as you. They're real people. There's always more going on than meets the eye. When Zechariah goes up to the temple, he goes as a husband, he goes as a wannabe father, a priest, and an older man. And since the Lord's service must go on, he has to stuff his personal shame and painful sorrow deep down into his heart so that he can step up and perform his duties and fulfill his ministry for the sake of God's people. He draws near to God on behalf of the people to pray for them. Incredible privilege. And he prays for them at the altar of incense, where incense is burned and represents the prayers of the saints. It rises up as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It is a living conversation that fills the air between God and his people. Like parents who long to be visited by their children, the Lord loves to see his people. He loves to hear their voices He loves to catch a whiff of their scent when they come into his presence. And that's the altar of incense. 
Zechariah goes into the temple, into this holy place, up to the altar of incense, which is positioned between the golden lampstand on one side and the table of showbread on the other. And he goes in to do what he has done countless times before as a priest. It's automatic. You could almost go through the motions if you've done it enough times. You could even check out and your body is doing one thing, but your mind is somewhere else. But here he is to offer holy fire, to burn incense, and to pray. And as a priest, he must have known the story of Nadab and Abihu. If I were a priest, that would be the first thing on my mind. That story shows what can happen to priests to rush in and offer strange fire to the Lord. Worship is risky business. It's a dangerous venture. Priests have died in the presence of the Lord for offering strange fire. So Zechariah wants to be careful. This is not the time to do whatever seems right to you. It's not the time to tinker around with the liturgy. It's not a time for spontaneity, to try something new. It's not a time to mix things up and to offer strange fire to the Lord. This is a time to focus your heart, your mind, your body, your soul on the Lord It's a time to stick to the ancient ways, to draw near by faith with reverence and awe towards God. Why? Because our God is a consuming fire. Same goes for us today. These are things for us to keep in mind as we draw near for worship. While Zechariah is praying inside the temple, crowds of people are outside praying. And imagine Zechariah standing at the altar offering his prayers once again as the smoke rises and the incense fills the air and he's taking it all in, smelling this beautiful aroma. Lord, hear our prayers. Forgive your people their many sins. Grant them relief from all their enemies. Help us in our time of need. Open my wife's womb and give her a child. We know that Zechariah asked for a son in that moment because of what happens next. An angel of the Lord steps through the veil that stands between the visible and the invisible realms. And he stands beside the altar. And he delivers a message from God to the priest. Your prayers have been heard. You and Elizabeth will have a son and you will have joy and gladness. Now, a couple of things here. The fact that an angel showed up in the middle of worship is a miracle in itself. But the fact that Zechariah did not faint or drop dead from shock in that moment is another miracle. The story is shocking to us, and it was even more shocking to Zechariah. And here's why. It's because we often find ourselves doing the kind of thing that Zechariah was doing. We worship on autopilot. We go in and we go through the motions. And it's not that we don't mean it, it's just that we've done it so many times, we're not quite sure if we're getting through, if it even matters. Is God even here? Does God exist? What am I doing in this place? But we keep doing it out of a sense of duty, out of a sense of faith, out of a sense of obedience, because God has called us there and we want something to happen, but we're not quite sure if it will. Theologically, we might say that we believe 
that when we draw near to worship God, we gather together with angels and archangels and all the hosts of heaven. We might even know on paper that the Spirit lifts us up into heaven when we gather for worship. But in our flesh, we low-key believe that what you see is what you get, what you hear is what you get. We live in a secular age. And it's so easy for us to get trapped in the imminent frame, in the here and now, disconnected, severed from heaven. It's so easy to suffer from a lack of spiritual imagination and a loss of transcendent vision. And yet many of us suffer in precisely that way. We still come to church But we don't really expect angels to minister to us. We don't really expect God to show up or to hear our prayers or to move. We don't really expect anything supernatural to happen, do we? We feel safe from all of that. Like Zechariah the priest, we need to offer our prayers but we also need the fear of God to be put back in us. Heart and soul, that we may draw near to God with reverence and awe. Why? Because we expect that we are coming into the presence of the true and living God, that he is actually meeting us in this place. When the angel appeared and announced his message, Zechariah trembled with fear, but he did not believe the good news. This is what James will later call demonic faith. It's the right response. You tremble because God exists. You tremble because God has spoken. But then later it's the wrong response to that fear is, I don't believe. Even the demons tremble, yet they do not believe. And I'm not saying Zechariah is a demon. I'm simply saying he had a natural response to an angel appearing, but it was not followed up with a spiritual response of faith and obedience. His eyes and his ears told him one thing, but his heart told him another. His heart was reminding him of all of his life experience that brought him to this point. It all sounded too good to be true, and that moved him to ask, how shall I know the certainty of these things? And he gives his rationale. I'm an old man. My wife has advanced in years. So you've made this promise, but I've got this experience that contradicts that promise. Show me how it's all going to work out. Because from my point of view, it's all counterintuitive. It contradicts everything I've lived and experienced up to this point. Think about it. How many times did Zechariah and Elizabeth try to make a baby before they finally concluded it ain't never going to happen? How many times, how many years went by before that experience was confirmed once and for all? How long did they pray for a child before they realized that God keeps saying no? Or maybe he just doesn't hear us. Now before you say in your heart, well, if an angel appeared to me while I was praying, I would totally believe whatever that angel said. You'd like to think so, wouldn't you? So would I. But ask yourself how many times you have trusted your own experience over God's promise. 
How many times have you trusted your wisdom and knowledge over against the knowledge and wisdom of the cross? How many times have you prayed for something only to doubt that God would actually hear you, much less to provide for you or to even help you? This is not a story about how you can't teach an old priest new tricks. It's not even a story about the failure of the Old Testament priesthood in general. It's a story about how even the godliest of men among us, a priest no less with all of his priestly experience, can stumble into cynicism and struggle to walk by faith, hope, and love, even as they are praying. And some of us can relate to this all too well, can we not? In response to Zechariah's unbelief of the good news, the angel strikes him mute, makes him speechless. You talk about adding insult to injury. Think about it. All of his life, his married life, he has wanted to be able to rush out of a house and announce to his neighborhood that his wife is going to have a baby. And on the very day that he learns that God has heard his prayer and that God will answer his prayer and that he is going to have a son and he has a chance to tell this good news, he stumbles out of the gates. His tongue sticks to the roof of his mouth and his lips are sealed. He is not permitted to go and tell anyone what God has just revealed to him. Due to his unbelief, He must live in a fearful silence for at least the next 40 weeks. And he is silenced and unable to make the announcement that he had always wanted to make until the son is born. How frustrating can you get? But can you imagine if your spouse came home from work and was not able to talk for several months? I mean, one person's nightmare is another person's dream, right? (laughs) And I got that line from my wife, so I don't know. I think. (laughs) What I want you to see here is that silence is not an arbitrary punishment, it's a spiritual discipline. And here are a few examples from the Old Testament to show you what I mean. Job repented and he sat in silence when he realized that he talked way too much he covered his head with dust and ashes and he put his hand over his mouth and said that's enough for me priest stood up in front of israel and told them to keep silent and listen to the covenant of blessing and cursing a psalmist saying that it is good to ponder things in your heart on your bed and to be silent. And the prophet called out, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. And St. Paul said that God's law holds the whole world accountable for its sins, so that every mouth will be silenced before God. And one of my seminary professors, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, once told some of his students, a Calvinist is someone who has shut his mouth. Meaning, someone who has stopped debating 
and arguing and questioning God, but someone who by faith says amen and amen to the word of the Lord. So the silence that Zechariah experiences is a spiritual discipline. It is a severe mercy. And we would do well to follow suit, to be quicker to listen and slower to speak, to embrace silence and shut out noise, to meditate, ponder, and reflect on the promises of God. We don't know how much longer Zechariah stayed in the temple after the angels silenced him, but it was long enough that the people outside got a little bit nervous. And the reason they got nervous is because they knew from their history that priests had died in the temple performing their duties. And they weren't quite sure if that's what might have happened to him. It could have been that he died because the Lord struck him down and did not hear his prayers. It could be that he died because he was advanced in age. So imagine their relief when they came out. God has heard our prayers again, and our priest has lived, and here he comes. And let's ask what took so long. And when he couldn't speak, they realized, oh, he wasn't alone in the temple. This is also good for the people of God to know that God is present As Francis Schaeffer said, he is there and he is not silent, although he often seems to be. So it dawned on them that Zechariah had seen a vision in the temple, perhaps like Moses who saw the glory of the Lord come and fill the tabernacle, or Isaiah who saw the Lord high and lifted up. Whatever the case, Zechariah did not make a book deal. He was not trying to release a movie to talk about his 15 minutes in the presence of an angel of God. He was not trying to capitalize on this vision. That's fearful silence. What about joyful shouts? Not long after that experience in the temple, Zechariah completed his service and he returned home. A short time later, the Lord opened his wife's womb and she conceived. So like Abraham and Sarah, Zechariah and Elizabeth who were barren, who were advanced in years, who had no child, were given a child. In answer to their prayers, they were promised a son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Like Rachel, God remembered Elizabeth and listened to her, and he opened her womb. And when she conceived, she said, God has taken away my reproach. He's taken away my disgrace. He's taken away my shame. Like Manoah and his wife, Zechariah and Elizabeth were given a son who was called to be a Nazarite, set apart from God from the womb for all the days of his life. So like Samson, John is going to be taken down by a seductive woman, but not in the same way. But you're going to see parallels between their lives. Like Hannah, Elizabeth conceived after praying and visiting a priest, and she was able to give birth to a prophet. And like Samuel, John is going to prepare the way for the people, for the coming of their king. So I want to say this as discreetly as possible, but I also want you to note what's happening in this story. What this shows us is that Zechariah has moved from unbelief to belief, that he repented and believed the gospel. And we know that because faith without works is dead. 
And his faith was alive and active. Not only at the temple, but at home and in the bedroom. And that is how he and his wife conceived this son, John, according to the word of the Lord. Fearful silence gave way to joyful shouts. Elizabeth is keeping this all to herself. For five months, she doesn't tell anybody that she's expecting, but she knows about the changes taking place in her body. She's not ashamed of being with child. She's not ashamed of letting people know that she's expecting, but she is waiting for the right moment in which she can make this announcement, this announcement of good news. And the scriptures tell us that when she is six months along, she's in her third trimester, she was visited by her kinsman, Mary, who was also expecting a son. Now, remember, there's no social media. They're not putting everyone on blast. They're not talking about every little feeling and wiggle and laughter or mood swing or nausea or morning sick. They're not doing all that the way people do today. Although you couldn't blame Elizabeth if she did have so much fun with that. Neither of them knows what's going on with the other. And Mary shows up to visit because of what the angel told her. And when she walks in and greets Elizabeth, the baby in Elizabeth's womb, who was filled with the Holy Spirit, leapt in her womb. Elizabeth, who was also filled with the Holy Spirit, did what her husband was unable to do. She shouted joyfully with a megaphone and eulogized Mary and Jesus like a prophetess. She said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And she eulogized Mary and Jesus. I say eulogized because that's the Greek word there. She said a lot of good things about them. She asked, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And she considered Mary's visit a gift of grace. For when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Now, I know that we have no problem at all eulogizing Jesus. We say all the good we can about him, for he is God in the flesh. He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. He is the Savior of the world. We cannot say enough good things about Jesus. But here's where we struggle. As Protestants, this makes us nervous, but Mary should be eulogized as well. Like Elizabeth, we should say all the good we can about the mother of our Lord. If you stop and think about it for just a moment, and I ask you the question, who is the second most important person to ever live in the history of the world? If you don't say Mary, your answer's wrong. So much good needs to be said about this woman who gave herself to serve the purposes of God for the life of the world, to bring about the Savior into the world. I want you to see something here as we get ready to land this plane. I want you to see that while these baby boys were still forming in their mother's wombs, the Holy Spirit was with them and with their mothers. When Jesus was still in Mary's womb, she went down to visit her kinsman Elizabeth, who was expecting John. 
She brings the Christ to Elizabeth and to John. When Jesus is a tiny, teeny little baby in her womb, not much more than a zygote at this point, his body is still unformed. He's still being knit and woven together in his mother's womb. It's in that moment when she shows up and greets Elizabeth that the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy. Why? Not because some impersonal mass inside of Mary's womb meant something. It's because God in the flesh was in Mary's womb. Because Christ the Lord had drawn near by the Spirit in the flesh. And John, who is the forerunner of the Christ, recognizes this by the Spirit and leaps for joy even as a baby forming in his mother's womb. And to spell it all out for you, what I'm trying to say is that this story is the most pro-life story we have in the Bible. Babies forming in their mother's womb are made in the image and likeness of God. They have the breath of life in them. They have names and personality. They can respond to the things of God in ways that we can't even imagine. And a story like this, in a subtle way, as one of my professors would say, the Holy Spirit is the master of understatement. It shows that human life begins not when a man or woman or a court decides that human life has begun. It begins at the moment of conception. It shows us that God became man, not when he was born, but 40 weeks before he was born, when he was conceived in the womb of Mary. The moment of conception was the moment of the incarnation. So God didn't come into the world as a full-grown man, but as a tiny zygote. Jesus was once a fetus, just like we were. He's passed through all the same stages and phases of life, just like we do. It's easy for us to hear stories like this and focus on Zechariah and Elizabeth and John and Gabriel, and you can blame the pastor for that. And as important as all of that is, we're not here to hear a history lesson or learn a little moral code for our life, but we're here to see and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So remember what this story has to do with Jesus. Remember that the angel Gabriel told Zechariah, I was sent to bring you the good news. And what is the good news that he brought? The good news that John will turn the children of Israel to the Lord their God. That he is going to point his hearers to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And how will he do that? He will do it in the spirit and the power of Elijah the prophet. He will square off against kings and priests and he will call God's people to stop limping and wavering between two sides. He will preach repentance and change the lives of many families for the better because he will call fathers to look at their children and pay attention to how they're growing up in the Lord. He will turn the disobedient back to the wisdom of the righteous. He will turn silent fears to shouts of joy. And all of this in an effort to make ready for the Lord a people prepared for their king. This is what we are hoping and waiting for. And may God hear our prayers. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, let us pray.
Almighty God, give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light now and the time of this mortal life in which Jesus Christ came to visit us in great humility that in the last day when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to life immortal through him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit now and forever. Amen.